Well, we had turned the house upside down and we still couldn't find them and we were desperate. My youngest son, Luke, he got a set of AirPods for Christmas and it was now February 1st and those things had disappeared, which I actually was impressed given his track record for keeping up with things uh, and how small AirPods are. I was actually impressed that we had them as long as we did. But they were gone. We didn't know where they were. And so we were turning the house upside down, trying to find Luke's AirPods. And there was a part of me as a father that wanted to make this like a tough love moment. Like, hey, you got to keep up with your stuff. I'm sorry you lost your AirPods, but it just is what it is. And uh, you're just going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to keep up with your stuff. But I also was being told of the absolute shame and horror of being literally the only kid at Brightfield Middle School without AirPods. Maybe even the entire world, as it was explained to me, that, that he potentially could be the only kid in the universe without AirPods. And so it was very important that we find these. And so my heart of stone was moved to compassion And we began to search for the AirPods. We literally turned the house upside down at 7 p.m. on the 1st of February. It's dark. It's cold outside. And you may be familiar with this little feature on on Apple products. It's called Find My iPhone. And it finds iPads and it finds phones and it can find AirPods too. And so we get the app out and we're looking and the omniscient, all-knowing iCloud has determined that the AirPods are at the end of Pin Oak, which we live on, and Chinkapin, which is the street that comes into our subdivision. There on the corner of Chinkapin and Pin Oak, the all-knowing, omniscient iCloud, whose ways are higher than our ways. You understand this, right? It's beyond, you know, it's beyond human capacity to understand the ways of the iCloud, in all things, really. But the omniscient iCloud said that they were, they were on the corner of Pin Oak and Chinkapin. And so Luke says, well, let's go look for them. I said, Luke, that corner belongs to someone else. Someone's house sits on that corner. And we can't go out at, at night in the cold with flashlights and be running around somebody's front yard looking for AirPods. But dad, I'll be the only one without AirPods. Okay, okay. You know, we'll do anything for our kids, won't we? We'll do anything for our kids. And so we jump in the car and we bundle up and we get our jackets and our gloves and our flashlights and we go to the corner of Pin Oak and Chinkapin and we're out there in the dark looking for this little white box. It's about this big in this massive front yard. And after about 30 minutes of this, we give up. I just say, look, I, I, I don't know. They're, they're not here uh, maybe the omniscient, all-knowing iCloud whose ways are higher than our ways. Maybe it's made a mistake. Uh, I, I, just, I just don't know. He said, you know what? You know what could have happened, Dad? Maybe the people that live in this house, they found them. And maybe they have them inside their house. I said, well, that, that's a possibility, but I don't know what we can do about that tonight. He said, well, you could knock on the door and you could ask him." Look, I don't know these people, and it's now 7.30, and it's pitch black outside, and we look kind of suspicious out here with flashlights. I said, well, Dad, i got to have them. You know, you'll do anything for your kids. (laughs) 
And so I cautiously approach this house and knock on the door and this person comes to the front door and I clumsily fumble my way around and try to explain to them what in the world I was doing in their front yard. And then I, I ask them, you, you, haven't, you haven't picked up a pair of AirPods, have you, in your front yard? Uh, and he just looks at me like, no, why would I do that? Um, and I tell him the situation and uh, give him my number. And uh, that was sort of the end of that. We were desperate. We didn't know where else to look, what else to do. I'll give you the epilogue to the story. The next day, I am going from one appointment to the next. And as is the case for me, I ran through a drive-thru and I'm eating on the go. And I'm putting a fry to my mouth and I drop it. And it falls in between the console of my car and my seat. And we all know we cannot let that fry perish. We cannot miss out on the goodness of that taste and the goodness of that fry. And so, so I reach down in between the console of my car and my seat. I'm also thinking about all the flavors the fry has now picked up on the way down and on the way up. And honestly, it's really going to enhance the taste of the fry because there's, there's other food items down there too. So you're going to get a little bit of Jolly Rancher. You're going to get a little bit of Nerds. You're going to get a little bit of whatever else. And as I'm fumbling around for this fry, as I'm driving, I feel something. I did what the iCloud was unable to do. I found Luke's AirPods in my car. Brought me great joy for him to come home. He only had to be the only kid at Brightfield Middle School without AirPods for one day. And it brought me great joy to give back to him his AirPods but we'll do anything for our kids. We'll knock on the door of a complete stranger. We will run around somebody's front yard in the middle of the night with flashlights. We'll do anything for our kids. And there's this official in the story in John chapter 4. His child is sick. He is on the brink of death. And so he goes to Jesus. And he asks Jesus to, to heal his son. And he actually crossed great distances and he went to great effort to get an audience with Jesus. The stakes were very high for him. The stakes were much higher for the royal official in John chapter 4 than they were for me. Actually, the dilemma and the desperation of the royal official in John chapter 4, it reminds me of a story I heard this week about a father. His name is John Crowley. And after his two children, Megan and Patrick, were born, doctors revealed that they had a genetic disease, a rare neuromuscular disease called Pampa disease. It's considered a, a death sentence. And I won't tell you the ins and outs of how it affects the, the cardiovascular system and how it pro prohibits muscles from doing what they're supposed to do, but their body wasn't generating a certain enzyme. And without this enzyme, their muscles weren't able to develop and do the things that they were supposed to do. And Mr. Crowley was told by doctors, it's Pampa disease. There's not a cure. There's not really a good treatment plan. Uh, the best thing we can do is keep your children comfortable. Um, they, they won't make it out of childhood. That answer wasn't good enough for Mr. Crowley because we'll do anything for our kids. He was a financial advisor at the time, and so he 
took all the equity out of his home, which was about $100,000, and he raided his 401k, and he started a biotech company. He didn't know anything about enzymes, didn't know anything about biology, didn't know anything about medicine, but he got with scientists and he got with researchers who did. He started a, a biotech company and they had a little bit of success with a little experiment. It enabled him to go and raise some venture capital and bring on more scientists, to bring on more researchers. And to make a long story short, they actually did develop a treatment that would extend the life of children with this disease and actually get them into adulthood. They still dealt with a lot of debilitating effects from the disease, but they were able to live. Sort of the epilogue to that story is the biotech company began to research other rare genetic diseases, and he ended up selling that company for $137 million. Pretty interesting epilogue, I'd say. But along the way, they've made advances and they've improved the quality of life of lots of people with this disease, especially Megan and Patrick. Uh, this year, Megan just enrolled in Notre Dame and is pursuing her bachelor's degree, something that doctors said 18 years ago she would never have the chance or the opportunity to do. Mr. Crowley is, is proof that we'll do anything for our kids, especially when the stakes are a whole lot higher than a set of AirPods. And for the royal official in the story, the stakes could not be higher. His son was on the brink of death. And so he comes to Jesus. And, and there's some, several cultural things going on here with this royal official coming to Jesus. There's, there's this issue of, of distance. I want to explain to you the distance that existed between the royal official and, and the cure for his son, Jesus. First of all, there's this geographical distance. That's the most obvious detail in the story. Jesus is back from a ministry adventure in Samaria. He's been in Judea. He's been in Samaria. Now he kind of skips over Galilee and he's back up in Cana. And the royal official is living in Capernaum, which is a, a very common place for Jesus. Jesus was there a lot. So he was familiar with Jesus and some of the things that Jesus was doing. But here's Jesus in Cana. It's a day's travel from Capernaum. And his son needs a cure now. And so he crosses the distance. He crosses the geographical distance to get where Jesus is and, and to have an audience with him. But there's also this cultural difference. He's a royal official. He's some kind of bureaucrat in Herod's government. We're not sure exactly what his position, position was, but it's easy to say or it's simple or it's obvious to say that he had some kind of power. He had some kind of prestige that, that enabled him to have this position. And so you have Jesus as an itinerant Jewish rabbi, no place to lay his head, no, no real possessions to call his own not even authorized really to be out doing the things that, that he's doing. He's going from place to place with this band of 12 people. And here's a royal official. So there is a distance there between where the royal official is and, and who Jesus is perceived to be. This is a story about, about d desperation. And it's a story about distance. And I want us to think about the desperate situations that we've been in before. 
Have you ever been in between a rock and a hard place? Have you ever had more bills than you had money in your bank account? Have you ever had more dysfunctional relationships than, than you had capacity to, to work out and, to, and to, 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 to make better and to reconcile? I mean, have you ever been in a situation where you just didn't have the answer to what was staring you in the face? You were desperate. And this is where the royal official is, but not only is he desperate, but he has this issue of distance that compounds the problem. I feel like when we are in a season of desperation, what makes it worse is this feeling that we're alone. This feeling that we're in the foxhole by ourselves. This feeling that that no one is is in the situation with us. No one is advocating on our behalf. Here we are in this awful thing. We're desperate and we feel alone. One of my favorite preachers is a lady named Christine Hung. And she's preaching on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And she made a simple statement and it stuck with me. It's two words. It forms one sentence. And it's so true. She said, distance dehumanizes. You know, the further we are from a situation, be it some kind of desperate tragedy or or something that's going on, the further we are from it geographically or emotionally or culturally, the further we are from it, the less human it is. The the easier it is for us to kind of compartmentalize that as something that's going on and and feel no connection to it. That's sort of what's happening right now as, as we see the suffering in Ukraine. You see this great injustice, this great evil that is being done to the people of Ukraine, something that grieves the heart of God. And I, I find myself waking up every morning, and one of the first things I do is, is turning on the TV to, to see if President Zelensky is still alive. Okay, good, he's still alive. I'm going to pray for him today. I'm going to pray for the people of Ukraine. Now I'm going to have coffee. And so I have my coffee, and I sit down. And I watch this thing play out on my TV. And I have about 15 minutes to devote to that. And then, you know what, I've got to get on with my day. I've got, you know, AirPods to find and fries to eat and lots of important things. So I need to get on with my day. And so I consume about 15 minutes of this awful thing that's going on in the world. And just as easily as I turn it on, I turn it off. And for my own mental health, I've disabled push notifications on my phone, by the way. I recommend it for all of us. You don't need to know who's on your Facebook. You don't need to know who's on your Instagram. You don't need to know about all that. You can check it one time a day. That's all you need to do. Try it. Trust me. But I I turn it off. I turn it off, and then I go about my day. There's a distance there. I have the convenience of, of turning that off. Doesn't mean I'm not concerned about it. Doesn't mean it doesn't grieve my heart. It doesn't mean I don't pray for that situation, but there's distance there. And what about when you're on the other side of the equation? What about when you're in the middle of the chaos? What about when you're in the middle of the desperation? What about when you're in a rock, in between a rock and a a hard place? How easy is it to feel that you're there alone? How easy is it to think about people who may know about your situation, but they're distant from you and so they're uninvolved and maybe you're going through something like this in our darkest moments we can be overwhelmed by not only feelings of desperation but feelings of distance feeling that no one is in close proximity to our suffering 
John is telling the story of Jesus in these miraculous signs. And here in this story, we need to be reminded of how John begins his gospel. John chapter 1, he proclaims that Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus shines God's light into the darkness of our situation. But not only that, John goes on to say that the word has become flesh. The word has become near. The word has gone from from distant to to imminent to close. God is now in the foxhole with you. God is now in the situation with you. God has taken on our flesh. He's taken on our suffering. And so, friend, whatever you're going through today, whatever desperate situation you're in, we need to know that Jesus is there with us and he bridges or he closes the distance and he gives us the opportunity to be near to him. And so the royal official, in desperation, he takes advantage of what God has done in the word becoming flesh. In the word becoming near, in the word jumping into his foxhole, he takes advantage of that. Verse 47 says this, When the man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come heal his son who was close to death. Royal official, someone with prestige, someone with power, goes to an itinerant Jewish rabbi and and begs him. He begs him. You see how desperate he is and you see how the distance has been closed in Christ. Now, in the passage that Pastor Aaron read for us, I want to make sure you don't miss sort of how this begins. Jesus says, you know, prophets don't have honor in their own country. He's going back up to Cana in Galilee where he changed the water into wine. This is sort of Jesus's home area. He's coming out of an area known as Samaria. And John is doing something very significant here. He's, he's contrasting these stories. So you have this story of Samaria, which is where Jews don't belong. They didn't really get along with the Samaritans. They're considered heretics, if you will. And in that story of the Samaritans, Jesus performed no miraculous sign. He really didn't. He sat down at a well and he bridged the gap or the distance between Jews and Samaritans. He bridged the gap between men and women. And he also bridged this gap that this woman who was perceived as an immoral woman, he bridged that gap too and came near to her. And the only thing Jesus did was lovingly, kindly, respectfully tell her the truth about her situation. He didn't do a party trick. He didn't change water into wine. He didn't perform a miraculous sign. He just loved her. He loved her. And he told her the truth about her situation and what was, what was going on. And the Samaritans, who should have been the last people to believe in Jesus, John tells us that many people in Sychar, the village that he was in in Samaria, many people put their faith in Jesus. No miraculous sign, no miracle, no water into wine. And now Jesus is in his home country, you know, where he kept the party going, where they had the most amazing party ever. And the Galileans are like, Jesus, are you going to do that again? Jesus, I promise I won't drink too much this time. I did last time, but if you'll do that again, that would be, that would be great. We, wanna, we want a miraculous sign. We want, we want you to do something. We want you to, to step in and, and do something for us. 
The Galileans were expecting another party trick. They were wanting another miracle. And so look at verse 48. Jesus says, and this is in contrast to the Samaritans, unless you people, the Galileans, the ethnic Jews, the ones who should be insiders, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will never believe. And John is going to proclaim these miraculous signs that we're looking at in this series on the miracles of Jesus. They're going to happen throughout the gospel, and they're, they're incredible. But the function of them is to point to what God is revealing in Christ. The function of them is to point to the Word now becoming flesh. And when you see Jesus, you see the glory of God. The miraculous signs are designed to reveal that truth. But the Galileans here in this text, they wanted party tricks. They, they wanted miracles. They wanted spectacular stuff. And so Jesus reminds them that, hey, I, I'm not here to do party tricks. But the man is desperate. The man is desperate, and so he, he begs Jesus. He falls down at his feet. And then we see in verse 49, the man issues something that he's used to issuing. It's an imperative. In the Greek language, there's actually a tense that, you know, in English, we just say come or go. And, and do, you know, we just, we just say it as an imperative. But in the Greek language, there's actually a verb tense. It changes the structure of the verb a little bit to say, I'm telling you to do something. And so the royal official gives Jesus an imperative. Come to my house. My child is going to die if you don't come to my house right now. The man persists. And I, and I want us to just pause here and think about when we are in those desperate situations and when we pray, when we, when we bring to God our problems and the things that we're dealing with. I, I want us to be emboldened today to persist in prayer. Because so many times we, we go to those moments and we're burdened by something and God doesn't immediately break in. The answer doesn't immediately come. We don't get the answer we want when we want it or God doesn't do the thing that we want him to do. In our mind, the best thing for God to do is to heal. In our mind, the best thing for God to do is to alleviate the burden. In our mind, the, the best thing for God to do is, is make people see the world the way I see the world. If they would just do that, it would all be better. God, we have an idea for how you are supposed to work. And when you don't, do we continue to persist in prayer? The, the story of our faith, the story of being a follower of Jesus is filled with people who haven't gotten what they've always wanted. Yet they have persisted in prayer. They have continued to go to the Father. They have continued to bring their burdens and their requests to God. And I want us to, to, to follow their example. I want us to persist in prayer, not because God doesn't hear us. God is not hard of hearing. He hears your prayers. But when we persist, it brings our will into alignment with His. That takes time. Do you realize this, church? Like God has a purpose for your suffering. He has a purpose for your desperation. God has not left you alone in this situation. He's working it all out towards an intended outcome. But, but the function of prayer so many times is for us to persist and for our will to be brought into alignment with His. 
And it takes time. God is faithful. He won't leave us alone in that moment. We're called to, to persist in prayer and, and slowly, through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, our will is bent into alignment with the will of God. And many times, we look back on those chapters of our life, and we didn't get what we wanted. God didn't heal the way we thought He was going to. The problem didn't magically disappear. But look at the transformation of our lives. Look at how God was faithful to, to bring us into alignment with what he was doing to redeem the world and to make us a part of that story. So Jesus, he's issued a few imperatives as well, and he feels emboldened to, to match the imperative with an imperative. And so in response to the royal official saying, come to my house, verse 50, Jesus says this, go, your son will live. And, and I don't know that there's a bigger statement of faith in, in the Gospel of John than this. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. The man took Jesus at his word. To, to, to leave the presence of Jesus without visible proof of his son's healing is a tremendous act of faith. And let's not miss what's going on there. He is in the presence of the living word, the word now made flesh, and he takes Jesus at his word. He takes the living word at his word. And this is our call as well. We're called to take Jesus at his word. Friends, I, I believe that, that whatever you're going through right now, the, the rock in the hard place, the foxhole you find yourself in, God is not distant from that, but he is using all of that to accomplish his divine will and, and purpose, not only in your life, but in the world. Somehow it, it fits together into the fabric of, of what God is doing to redeem the world. Someday we'll, we'll see the full story of God unfold, and, and we'll see how our chapter fits into this glorious thing that God is doing. But until then, we're invited to trust we're invited to take the next step. And in so many ways, taking Jesus at his word is a step into the unknown. But here's what we believe. Here's what we are, are banking on. That each step into the unknown, as we trust God, it moves us closer to his ultimate purpose for our lives. I want you to view your suffering that way today. I want you to view your, your desperation that way. That, that although you don't have the answer that you want or you don't have the outcome that you desired, know that this step of faith, the step of faith that you take today, is somehow fit into the ultimate purpose for creation and the ultimate purpose for your lives. But we're called to take Jesus at his word. We're called to, to take Jesus at his word, recognizing that our deliverance happens along the way. We want it to be instant. We want to have instant verification that our son is okay, that the problem is solved. But he takes Jesus at his word, and along the way, the deliverance happens. And this story really fits into the overall 
thing that, that John is doing. I mean, we get to the end of John's gospel and he says, these miraculous signs, we record them for you so that you might believe and know that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you might have life in his name. And then the classic story of this is Thomas in John 20. He puts his hand in Jesus' side. He sees the nail prints in his, in his hands and, and sees the resurrected Christ before him. And Jesus says, you know, Thomas and everybody else who's reading this story, you have seen me and you have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus is talking about us. He's talking about people of faith. He's talking about the church. We are in this season of what God is doing in which we don't feel and touch and taste physically like John did, but we have the opportunity to believe even though we can't verify physically what the Bible says. John in his letter to 1 John, you know how he begins it? He kind of knew we'd be in this situation. So in his epistle, he says, Dear friends, dear children, I write to you what I have seen and heard so that, so that you might believe, so that you might be a part of this story. And so that's our invitation today. I mean, to take Jesus at his word. And it's so hard sometimes. It, it's so hard to, to step out into the unknown, to walk into places that we, where we don't have the full plan. We don't have the full picture of what's going on. We only have enough light for the next step. It's, it's so hard. One of my favorite pastors is a lady named Barbara Brown Taylor. And she tells a story that helps us understand what it looks like to, to take Jesus at his word. She tells a story that reminds us that our deliverance, it many times happens along the way when God is at work and we may not even realize it. She was at the beach during the season in which loggerhead turtles come ashore to lay their eggs. And one turtle, after laying its eggs, got sort of disoriented and forgot where it was at. And instead of crawling back into the sea, the turtle crawled over the sand dune and was now uh, stuck in a place where she could not get back to the ocean. She, she was in the noonday sun on the other side of the sand dune. She was getting baked out by the sun, and she didn't have enough energy to climb the dune again and return to the sea. This community where she was, uh, where uh, Pastor Taylor was, was, was uh, vacationing in, they had a, a real heart for these turtles. They were, um, they were an endangered species or about to be an endangered species. And so they, they, they made sure that, um, that when this migration of turtles happened, that people were there to you know, help and assist. And so they had people who were trained and were looking for these kinds of situations. And so she alerted someone to say, hey, there's a, there's a loggerhead turtle over here in distress. Is there anyone that can help? And they radioed someone, and this beach patrol officer showed up, and he had a jeep, and he was prepared to help. And she writes about how this beach patrol officer helped the turtle. She writes this, As I watched in horror, he flipped her over on her back, wrapped tire chains around her front legs, and hooked the chain to a trailer hitch on his jeep. He took off, 
yanking her body forward so fast that her mouth opened and filled with sand and disappeared uh, into, the, into the sand. It yanked her neck so hard, I feared it would break. The ranger hauled her over the dunes and on the beach. I followed the path the prowl of her shell had cut in the sand. At ocean's edge, he unhooked her, flipped her on her right side, and she lay motionless as the water lapped at her body, washing her eyes and making her skin shine again. Suddenly, a huge wave broke over her, and she lifted her head, moving her legs slowly. As I watched, she revived. Every fresh wave brought life to her, until one wave made her so light that she was able to push off into the water that was her home. Watching her swim slowly away and remembering her nightmarish ride through the dunes, I noted that it's sometimes hard to tell if you are being killed or saved by the one who turns your life upside down. Can you relate? Is it sometimes hard to tell if you, are, if you are being killed or being saved? God, are you working all things out for my good or, or not? I don't know that I can I rightly perceive what you're doing here, God. I feel like my life is turned upside down. Nothing's going the way it's supposed to. But this story illustrates that it, we don't have the perspective we don't have the ability to see that, that God is at work bringing us into an environment where we can thrive, where we can live, where we can fulfill the purpose for which we were created. What we are called to do in those moments is to take Jesus at his word. And his word says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. His word says that I'm working all things out for the good of those who love me and are called according to my purpose. So how many of us today are taking a nightmarish ride through the sand dunes? How many of us today are, are living through something and we're not sure what God is doing and we're not sure what the outcome is? Can the official in John chapter 4, can his faith be an example for us today? Could, could we leave here today taking the living word at his word? Can we leave here today with a deeper sense of trust that God is orchestrating my pain, my desperation? He's orchestrating all of that for my deliverance and for the deliverance of others. And somehow, this thing I'm going through, it fits into God's ultimate purpose for creation. I pray that, that, that we can take Jesus at his word.